You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of The Dirt on the Past. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of the program. This week, we're at the Extreme History Headquarters, speaking via Zoom with Dr. Craig Lee, Dr. Shane Doyle, and Professor Ian Van Coller about a collaboration they're undertaking to better understand climate change, human ecology, and ancient high-altitude landscapes by looking through the lens of their three separate disciplines. They have come together for a convergence of interests and research, which we're excited to talk about today. Welcome, Shane, Craig, and Ian. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, before we dive into your research project or to your collaborative project, we would like to introduce each of you to our listeners, starting with Dr. Shane Doyle. Shane is a member of the Crow or Abzalaga Nation. He has a doctorate in curriculum and instruction and completed a postdoctoral appointment in genetics with the University of Copenhagen, Denmark in 2016. With 20 years of teaching experience, Dr. Doyle is a full-time educational and cultural consultant designing American Indian curriculum for many organizations, including Montana Public Schools and the National Park Service. He is currently serving on the board of directors for the Extreme History Project, which we are so glad to have you with us on that board, Shane. Um, Also, Hopa Mountain and the Archaeological Conservancy, as well as serving on the Montana Arts Council Culture and Aesthetics Committee, and the Governor Parks in Focus Committee. Shane has been a member of the Extreme History Project from its inception, actually before its inception. Um, Shane, Marsha Fulton, and myself began researching Fort Parker, the first Crow Indian agency, um, many years ago, probably, oh, 10 20 years ago, and it feels like a long time, but wow. yeah. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think Shane, Jimi Hendrix was still playing. I think so. I think so. <laughs> yeah. But Shane was so, and is still part of the Fort Parker Research Project, which is still ongoing, And but such a, a good foundational member of extreme history in all ways. So um, welcome, Shane. Yes, welcome, Shane. Thank you so much. Yes, and now I get the pleasure of introducing, for the first time for me, my husband, Ian Van Collar. So I've never done an introduction for my husband before, and and this is pretty exciting. So Ian was born in Johannesburg, South Africa, and grew up in the country during a time of great political turmoil. Those were his formative years, um, and those became integral to the subject matter that he pursued throughout his artistic career. Van Collar received a national diploma in photography from Technicon Natel in Durban, and in 1992, he moved to the United States to pursue his 
studies where he received a BFA from Arizona State University and an MFA from the University of New Mexico. He currently lives in Bozeman, Montana, and is a professor of photography at Montana State University. Ian's work has been widely exhibited nationally and internationally and is held in many significant collections, including um, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Library of Congress, and the South African National Gallery. Van Collar also is a 2018 Guggenheim Fellow and a Fellow at the Explorers Club. His most recent work focuses on environmental issues related to climate change and deep time. These projects have centered on the production of large-scale artist books, as well as direct collaborations with paleoclimatologists. So, welcome, Ian. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. And now our third and final guest, Dr. Craig Lee. Craig is a scientist at the Institute of the Arctic and Alpine Research, an instructor at Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana, and a principal investigator at Metcalf Archaeological Consultants. His research interests include the human ecology and landscape archaeology of alpine and high-altitude environments. Lee frequently collaborates with Native American people to develop culturally respectful methods for ice patch archaeology, and he delights in sharing his results with the indigenous communities that he works with and the general public as well. In 2016, he was recently awarded the very prestigious Camp Monaco Prize from the Buffalo Bill Center for the West. And so um, Craig has many, many more things I could talk about, but we're just going to keep it short today with everybody, all of all three of you. We are so excited to have all of three of you here today. You all work in very different spheres, but have come together recently around Craig's work in the Beartooth Mountain Range. Craig, can you tell us briefly about the work you are doing and how the three of you have come together more recently, but also in the past as well? Well, uh, thank you very much for the introduction and for uh, inviting me to to speak with my uh, friends and colleagues, which is just uh, really cool. I don't think I've actually had an interview with uh, with other folks. so <laughs> It's kind of a nice change during COVID, isn't it? Yeah. It is. It is. It's nice. Um, so let's see. I mean, I guess, you know, it's been some number of years now. And I think part of the, the opportunity for us to work together is just uh, sort of been serendipitous uh, contacts that, that we had. Uh, and then I think that the secret to making it be successful is that we just didn't back away from it. And uh, we just decided, yeah, we should, uh, uh, see, uh, you know, where uh, these uh, research directions might take us. I, I guess I think it's been uh, fairly organic, uh, for lack of a better way to describe it. And um, were you asking uh, what what the nature of the material is that we're working on, or was that enough of an intro? Yeah, yeah that's that's a great intro, Craig. But I am asking what the what the collaboration is focused around. Sure. Well, I think. Um, Again, it's kind of it's kind of tripartite because there's the the field of ice patch archaeology is is much larger than uh, just our work in in the Rocky Mountains of Montana and Wyoming and, and Idaho for that matter, right? It's a global 
phenomena, uh, and it's been approached differently uh, because it is a global phenomenon. It's approached differently in different places. Um, in some places, it, it's I think tends to be a little bit more static and kind of uh, you know just the 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 usual practice of archaeology, where there's uh, an assessment made of uh, X number of finds coming from certain locations and so forth, but. Uh, the thing that makes it so special here in the Rocky Mountains is is the connection that we've been able to establish with folks through colleagues like uh, like Dr. Dr. Shane Doyle, uh, where we're trying to not just collect the archaeological data, but trying to see it in context of you know, the, the still living populations, of course, who are descendant from the folks who made and used the tools that we identify in the archaeological record. And that, that really isn't novel. That has been an approach that's been around in archaeology for a long time, and yet it doesn't seem like it's always in vogue when maybe it ought to be. Uh, and so that's that's one of the cool connections that's been developed, you know, working with Shane. And then Ian, working with Ian, has been, uh, you, you know, again, and ar- archaeologists can – feel real comfortable standing up in a front of a room of uh, full of other archaeologists and, and sort of uh, palavering on about the uh, nature of the things that have been identified and can you know, put up graphs and talk about radiocarbon dates and geek out on that kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know that it's always as approachable to the, to the, the public and everybody, right? I'm talking about all the different publics. So the uh, indigenous population publics and the, the, uh, uh, the publics of, you know, the, the citizens locally in, in the states where we're talking about the research today in the greater Yellowstone area, but also on a broader scale, sort of the national and international scale. And I think that's where Ian's artistry, so he's a you know phenomenal artist and photographer, but his ability to take meaningful pictures that, 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 that capture the, the, sort of the nuance of the work, the nature of the work, and allow people, I think, that the general publics to be able to uh, have a sense of that space and place where we're working. Uh, it, it goes beyond what the capabilities are of, you know, let's say myself as an archaeologist or, you know, I mean, it approaches Shane's gifts as an, as an order and an, and an educator. But, uh, you know, in concert, when they all come together, it makes the full tight package that I think people are really seeing and enjoying and getting some resonance out of. Great. Um, thanks, Craig. And Shane, I want to turn to you now and, and ask, your background has been fascinating and somewhat varied. You've been working during the past 10 years or so with many archaeologists and doing collaborations of all sorts. You've also been working with geneticists, including Eski Villerslav, on genetic research concerning migrations into the Americas. So I'm interested in how your past work in education and working on peopling of the Americas from a genetic standpoint, as well as an indigenous perspective that you bring to it, what brought you to this collaborative project around the use of high-altitude spaces by ancient people um, in Montana. So these spaces that are landscapes that were perhaps different in terms of their climate in the past, but were really used by people. So what is your interest in and what are you um, uh, bringing to and getting out of this collaboration? Well, great question. You know, I, first of all, I just have to say, um, because I was invited, you know, um, they asked me, 
And so uh, I said yes. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, we go uh, back a long ways. And what's funny is I was never interested in archaeology. Uh, I never felt any compelling reason to, to go into the study of archaeology. Um, I never learned anything from archaeology, quite frankly, that really um, deeply affected me. Um, and while I was an undergrad in grad school, it was always kind of bouncing around, circling around people who I knew were kind of either involved with it or, you know, interested in it and trying to bring me in on it. And uh, I never really was interested at all. And um, finally, uh, my advisor, when I was getting my dissertation, said, Shane, I want you to do your study on archaeology. And so I was like, OK, I guess I'm doing archaeology. And <laughs> it just so happened that um, we were doing a, they were doing a study on the uh, second Crow Agency, which is where one of my great grandfathers was born. Uh, back in 1885. And so it was an opportunity for me to study this really, you know, place that was really important to my, me and my family. And that's kind of how I started to become really involved with archaeology. And then, you know, working with Eska Willerslev, uh, interesting story about that. Just give me a quick minute here. Um, I first met Crystal, it's been uh, many years ago. And, uh, you know, she was into archaeology and she wanted to connect with native people. And so I can't even remember how we first met or visited. And then she mentioned my name to Craig. Um, and so I got to know Craig and then years go by. And then all of a sudden I get an email from this guy, Larry Laren. Um, and he says, you know, there's this guy coming from Denmark. He wants to meet some Indians, you know, I'm wondering if you're interested in coming in. And so the rest is history. You know, I, went, I met Eska Willerslev. I was mentioned as co-author on the 2013 nature study of this 12,600-year-old uh, boy, uh, this very famous site. <clears throat> some time went by, and, you know, I finally asked someone, how did Larry get my name? <laughs> like, um, how did Larry know how to call me? And someone, I think, I think it was Larry or someone was like, I'm pretty sure Craig Lee told Larry about you and so i mean talk about full circle yeah you know, by then i had craig hadn't really done anything with that anzic study at all uh but i think just kind of looking back on it now from the point perspective i have now um it's really fascinating how all those dots were kind of bouncing around and then all came connected and uh, now that we're all connected and i feel like um you know as as time goes by, you find out that you just want to work with quality people, um, people who have integrity and, um, you know, try to bring their best to what they do and have an open mind and heart. And um, as long as you have a team with those kind of people on it, um, you know, you just kind of want to keep working with them. And um, inevitably, we keep finding new things and changing history and um, changing people's perception of uh, Native people. And me, of course, my whole perception of archaeology has, you know, done a 180. That's a relief to and, hear, um, Shane. Yeah. Yes, I was a little <laughs> distressed by your comments earlier. Just kidding. Well, that's why I wanted to emphasize that, Nancy, because uh, I just wanted to show that if I can be turned around, anyone can be, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there's hope. And uh, there's hope. And so, hope. yeah, I don't want to ramble on too long. Exactly. I love archaeology. I, I really uh, want to continue doing it. Um, there's so much to learn from it. And my, I feel like my task that uh, is 
pretty clear in front of me that I recognized several, many years ago is I need to be one of the people who tells the stories about the ancient past that connected with the modern future in a way that um, is relevant and important and makes people interested and, and, and want to study more. Mm, thanks, Shane. Yeah, I loved what you said about all of us collaborating, working together, because we really do, you know, there's this, um, and this, and that's, I think, how it works in the fields often of history and archaeology is you, you form these bonds, these um, groups, these communities, and we definitely have that yep. community amongst all of us. And so, and, and that's, I guess, one of the things that I wanted to highlight by gathering you all yep. today uh, is to kind of highlight that community that we have formed together, you know, really over many years. Um, but it's a really important group now, and we all work with each other, we all trust each other, and we all collaborate with each other because we are all good people and, and have mm-hmm. knowledge in different arenas. So I love that you said that, um, Shane. And Craig, too, really. That's such an important part. It is. I it mean, is. I'm friends with all you guys. I, I love hanging out with you. You know, we having dinners after the uh, the lectures is one of the highlights of my year. And yeah. No, it's been a bummer that we haven't been able to do that as much, but I look forward to getting back and doing that soon. Yes. There's a lot to be said for that, you know, that close community connection. Nancy? I was just going to say, and I think something that maybe has brought all you three together is that I think you guys like to hike in the mountains. And that's part (laughs) of, you're bringing all your different expertise, but you all have shared enjoyment around um, those (laughs) landscapes, you know, those activities. Right, right, right. Absolutely. So, Ian... Um, in 2018, you received the Guggenheim Fellowship and were able to travel to places including Antarctica, Baffin Island in the Canadian territory of Nunavut, and also to um, Svalbard. And I'm probably saying all those names wrong, but <laughs> you can correct me. <laughs> um, and, and, and while you were traveling to all these amazing, very stark barren places. You were exploring climate change and deep time. How did this work influence you and help you think about these environments that you've been working with, with Shane and Craig and, and this collaboration? And then also, so that's kind of the first question. The second question is, uh, can you talk about your work with Craig prior to this newer collaboration, some of the photographic work you've been doing with Craig in the past few years as well? Yeah, so I'm, I'll I'll step back a few years. Um, I started doing this work in 2012. I was invited to join a friend, of, a good friend of mine from graduate school, Todd Anderson, who's a printmaker at Clemson University, to start hiking into um, Glacier National Park to document um, the receding glaciers in Glacier National Park and. You know, the turn of um, the 20th century, there were like 125 glaciers um, left in the park and we're, we're down to you know, less than 25, depending on who you talk to. Um, and over several years, um, we hiked many, a couple hundred miles um, to document um, the receding ice. And I think um, ice really is the easiest way to see the effects of climate change. Um, When you go to these places, you can see the impact of the melting right in front of you. It's it's dramatic. 
Um, and so over the course of years, um, I started to visit different places, um, further afield. Um, and I think uh, a change occurred at some point where I started to see a limitation in photography um, where, you know, after a while you see one picture of a glacier and you see another picture of a glacier and it becomes quite repetitive. And at a point there's not really um, an entry for a viewer beyond, oh, it's a beautiful picture of ice or here's a melting iceberg or a melting glacier. Um, and so I, I realized that uh, there were there was a knowledge that I didn't possess, and so I wanted to find people who possessed that knowledge, who could tell me about you know what was really happening with the ice and and what it meant. And so in 2015, I accompanied some scientists to Kalkaya with them there and learn about their research. And then in 2016, I accompanied one of those same scientists to uh, Kilimanjaro. Um, where his other research sites melting glaciers on the planet. Uh, and I wanted to try and tell that story through the perspective of, of the scientist. I, I you know, it was kind of an epiphany um, looking back at my history in South Africa and my interest in colonial um, scientists you know, from Europe who were going all over the earth, all, all over the planet, and those scientists were artists as well as scientists. You know, they would make these drawings and paintings and they would annotate them. And uh, one of my um, heroes is Alexander von Humboldt. And, you know, for, for me, it, fe- it felt like scientists had become well, very sort of n- almost narrow and had difficulty communicating their research to a larger audience. Um, And so I felt like, wow, this is really an amazing opportunity to bring science and art back together and bring it to uh, a larger audience. And so, you know, with the, with the Guggenheim work, it was this amazing opportunity to go to far flung places, sometimes with scientists, sometimes with other artists, you know, to really try to tell um, a larger story of climate change, but connected to um, to the science as well um, to tell a story. Um, so with Craig, uh, you know, I met Craig through Nancy. Um, you know, Nancy knew about Craig's research in the Beartooths, and um, we connected that way. And I was able to spend a few days uh, with Craig and his team up at his site in the Beartooths. And, um, yeah, I mean, what I do basically is I, I photograph the place. I try to experience the research site of the scientist, um, talk to them about what they do um, to try and get a, some kind of understanding. And then I, I make these large photographic prints and I ask them to physically annotate their research, their understanding of what they're doing of that space directly onto the print. So it, it, it brings this, hopefully, um, photographic art view of that geographic landscape and then um, an interpretation from 
the scientist in this case, Craig, who was studying this um, bighorn sheep kill sites uh, in the Beartooths together. Um, so, yeah, that's the history of that. Okay, I want to just take a quick station break, and then um, I want to uh, finish up with Ian and then ask Craig a little bit about what that experience was like annotating a piece. So you're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and Crystal Alegria on kgvm.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Shane Doyle, Craig Lee, and Ian Van Collar as they discuss a collaborative project they're undertaking to better understand climate change, human ecology, and ancient high-altitude landscapes by looking through the lens of their three separate disciplines. So, Ian, you create then these very large-scale photographic images, and by having the scientists annotate them, you're essentially creating one-of-a-kind pieces. And these are for exhibition, is that correct? Yes. So, so you're you were asking scientists to do something perhaps that they hadn't ever been asked to do before and i imagine there was some trepidation they may have experienced how did you approach getting them to annotate these pieces um yes yeah. <laughs> it's a good question um it, it really varies a great deal um from person to person and i think Part of it has to do with spending time in the field with them and talking about the project and gaining some level of trust. Um, and certainly um, it has been the case with some people that they're just too busy uh, and they're, it's difficult for them to take on or conceptualize what that might look like. But, you know, on the whole, the... My response has been incredibly positive, and I'm always astounded by the artistry that um, these scientists who really haven't been trained as artists uh, possess. Without exception, um, I think every piece that I've collaborated on has been really successful and really beautiful. Um, and with the idiosyncrasies, um, the knowledge of that person, I think, um, really comes through. But yeah, I've, I've had people who, you know, um, I communicate with over time and they just sort of fall off the map. And um, at, at some point, I, I feel like I'm hassling them and I, I sort of um, don't pursue it any further. But that's been really the minority of, of people. Most um, folks have been really excited to collaborate with people, out, someone outside their field. So, so Shane, I know you're on Ian's list of people to collaborate with, but Craig, you have uh, been on Ian's list and you actually uh, worked on a collaboration together. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the image that Ian presented you with and what that experience was like being asked to annotate it and what you decided to do. Well, I mean, uh, first off, thank you again, Ian, for allowing me to participate on that with you. It was Uh, you know, very much uh, that it was kind of an iterative process. So you, you first provided me with some examples of what a large format <clears throat> print looks like. And you explained, you know, the, the sort of range of, of things that a person might be able to, to put on there. I mean, basically it was a blank canvas, although it was your photo. Uh, and you said what, what 
what kind of information would you like to impart directly on on this canvas? And so I, you know, molded molded over and molded over, and uh, you know, sketched out some some thoughts, uh, and then just wonderfully, uh, uh, you gave me some uh, fancy pens that worked well on this this paper, and uh, it just sat down and started sort of uh, plugging away at it. Uh, and in that process, I realized I needed to be a little bit more. Uh, probably um, planned <laughs> with regard to, to information. So I think that was the end of, of version one. Uh, and then version, version two, um, you know, I, I kind of had pulled, pulled some of my thoughts together in a, in a different, in a different fashion, but I still recognize that, you know, by placing them at various locations on the, the image, it would really, uh, I guess, sort of, even though it's it's your image, it would sort of let your audience or the collective audience, whoever sees it, sort of see what I saw in it, in that it's your photo. I can't imagine that that sounds very clear in a podcast. But <laughs> so to tell you what the image looks like, right? I mean, it's a it's kind of a a, a long view looking down at ground level of one of these. Uh, ice patch research sites and it's it's got all of the components that are necessary to really talk about it it's got the uh, melting uh, uh, it's got the melting face uh, of the ice patch this particular instance uh, we know this ice patch to be many many thousands of years old uh, and it's and yet it's destabilized it's clearly destabilized because the area on the on the high side of it is still covered with fresh snow uh the space around it down at the at the bottom where it's snow free and there's been a lot of runoff occurring is there's a lot of symmetry between that and the runoff channels that are coming off the surface of the ice patch and it it basically provides a uh sort of a, a landscape or a geography that you know i could put comments on and say well these are you know, this is what's happening in this location and the area above this where it's not melting is where the ice, at least in this year, might be accreting. Um, and then the areas down below is where, where it melted away and where we might be able to find uh, some artifactual materials. Uh, and then you included insets of uh, pieces of material that we were actually uh, collecting in the field. Uh, and since this wasn't something that happened sort of on right at, at the snap of a finger, uh, snap of the fingers, we had actually been able to complete the analysis on some of those pieces that we had uh, collected and were able to incorporate things like the radiocarbon ages. As I recall, there were some, uh, at least two bighorn sheep skulls that were in excess of 5,000 years old uh, that were, were washing away from from this surface. And you know, it, 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 it sort of is a moment in time, right? I mean, we've, we've been taking these photos now, or you've been taking photos, uh, you know, with the, with the artistic eye, but we've collected photos of, of ice patches going back, um, you know, even into the 1920s, not myself, of course, but other folks uh, were taking photos of these things, not necessarily for their archeological significance, but uh, you just, just, documenting the landscape. And when you can start to look back on these things through time, you realize that we've just made yet another important page uh, in the book, the life history book of, of some of these locations. And I think that's the, it's a neat opportunity to, to 
be able to incorporate one's own thoughts on that sort of a space and then recognize, of course, that the subsequent generations, hopefully you're going to have the opportunity to write um, additional pages into this story. Thank you, Craig, for that description. And I I wanted to ask you and, and then also would like to toss this to Shane after is this idea of communicating scientific information, but not to a scientific audience. And I wanted to ask you, Craig, if you felt like when you were working on this piece, if you were using a different part of your brain and and sort of how you chose to to structure or pick and choose the items and what kind of detail or what kind of things you highlighted. And and eventually I'd like to work back around to Shane, who I think very much being in the field of education and having a background in, in storytelling and in an oration, um, how you communicate these really interesting, complex ideas, but not to a, a scientific audience. So Craig, we'll start with you. Sure. Thanks. That's a, that's a very good question. Uh, I don't know if I was using a different part of my brain. Or not. <laughs> put you in to, an MRI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trying to put the content uh, into that um, image. But I think um, one of the things, and I, I did just glance back at it actually, because I took a, a picture of it. Um, and one of the things that I could see is that I, and I usually try to do this in the, in the, all of the work that I do is I try to be um, inclusive uh, and and acknowledge uh, all of the, well, not all, it's impossible to acknowledge all, but to note many of the different folks that are, that are influencing the research, um, try to talk a little bit about the, the value uh, of, of the research and not just from my own eyes, but of course, probably poorly paraphrasing uh, colleagues, uh, but trying to get, trying to convey uh, that, right, there's no, um, nothing really especially important about me actually working on this uh, project. It's it's the, the, the whole package, the nature of the information that is, is potentially there, uh, our opportunity to engage with it in the hope that uh, we're, we're doing something meaningful for for past and present and future generations. And I, I think that some of the, the tidbits of information that I put in there with, for instance, the, the big horn uh, sheep skulls, which I said we'd radiocarbon dated well, uh, there are colleagues wonderfully at, at Montana State University who have been successful in, in working with um, other colleagues at the, in the University of California system, like Dr. Beth Shapiro, who's an, another ancient genomics expert. She works with uh, faunal material, uh, unlike Eska Villersev, who's a, a, another colleague and a colleague through Shane. Um, but they they're, uh, have actively succeeded in extracting uh, ancient DNA from these now radiocarbon dated bighorn sheep remains and are able to sort of look through time at other bighorn sheep remains that they've gotten ancient DNA from and compare that to modern uh, bighorn species, uh, sorry, the the modern bighorn that are living in the area, uh, compare the genetic signatures between those modern sheep and the ancient sheep to to try to resolve patterns and tease out uh, possible inferences about about ancient sheep behavior. So this is a an example of, of 
just one aspect of the science that can come uh, from these archives, these ice patch archives. Um, so too, the opportunity to work uh, again with colleagues like Shane Doyle, but also all of the colleagues that we worked with up in Glacier National Park is a part of a multi-year uh, National Park Service funded study that was incorporating both um, uh, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes and the Blackfeet Nation as partners where we had uh, regular interaction and, and engagement in the field on the part of all those parties uh, and just basically listening and, and trying to, what I've tried to do is repeat in some of the text on this image, um, what, you know, some of my tribal colleagues were trying to say the value in uh, this project was, was for them. And I think my, my friend and colleague Francis Ald is one of the person's words who keep resonating with me, but he said, it's, you know, this is not about, you know, cre creating a, a memorial uh, to the past and getting more materials incorporated into a repository somewhere. This is about finding things that are of, of value for sustaining the living cultures. So the living uh, culture of the tribes making making this past relevant to them and for future generations. And I'm never going to be able to say anything as eloquent or <laughs> as that. And again, I'm probably you know misparaphrasing. Uh, <laughs> but well, you know, this is my that's my best stab at this. I, I love that, Craig. It's a it's a collaboration on this uh, two-dimensional format that's very visual, but you're incorporating all of these aspects of the project and all the people you worked with in that information and, and putting it into a, a really um, visually interesting and engaging format. So I, th I think that's incredibly exciting aspect of what you all are doing together. And I'm wondering, Shane, if you could also speak a little bit, I mean, I, working with um, ESCA and, and working on this project, how you communicate is the scientific information that's swirling around you to a, a non-science audience. How do you think about that? How do you approach that? Yeah, you know, that's that's the challenge, I think, especially in this day and age when science is under such, you know, an attack, it feels like, uh, from the public. Um, and even though it's gotten us this far, you know, um, and I really uh, feel like, you know, there's nothing inherently uh, immoral about science, you know. Um, and I guess uh, the reason why I say that and bring that up in this context is just thinking about, um, you know, a lot of Native people don't necessarily uh, appreciate or uh, understand how archaeology benefits them because there has been such a disconnect um, over the years. And, you know, thinking about, um, uh, you know, how human remains were taken and stuff and how archaeology played a role in that. Um, and I think all none, those are the types of concepts, I think, and histories that we should be getting across to, to students um, because we want to also include in this day and age and in in our uh, understanding of science, where science has come from, where it's going, and how, you know, the culture of the day has directed the movement of science. And now we have a uh, great opportunity here to celebrate the collaboration that we have going here. Um, you know, I've Craig and I have worked with many Native people over the years. I mean, Francis Ald, uh, I met Francis when, when I was working with Eska Willersleth. 
and we went up to Salish Kootenai. Now, you know, we're still friends after all this time, of course. And I've seen him at Crow Fair and, um, you know, so it's a really small world, I think. Um, I, I think maybe I'm kind of digressing from the uh, but, answer, but. But I think you guys, I, are, I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think you're both coming around to this point about the work that you're talking about and being done, really that science has to be relevant today to the people today who are involved in part of the collaboration. It's not just science for science sake. It's not science without an ethical consideration of descendant communities or other things. There, there has to be that aspect of it for it to be meaningful. And it seems like that's what you're all are focusing on to some degree in this collaboration. Yeah, I think so. I, when I design curriculum, that's my thought in mind. Um, how do I take this ancient archaeological science and bring it to young people in a way that they really understand it and appreciate it and want to write songs about it and make plays about it and, you know, uh, daydream about it and wonder about what they could do when they got older? I mean, it's that whole thing of, you know, making science into something that human beings appreciate and see as a vehicle you know, to take them to places that they otherwise would not be able to go. Craig, we want to turn back to you again. Um, as a high altitude archaeologist, we wanted to sort of talk about this field a little bit because it's somewhat new. In, in terms of a decade or two ago, archaeologists weren't looking a whole lot or didn't necessarily know a whole lot about how people actually use these high altitude locations above or around 10,000 feet. Uh, many people assumed these spaces were too harsh to live in. There wasn't a lot of systematic surveys or even uh, remote sensing going on from uh, new technologies like we have now, like drones or even using Google Earth. And, and the work you've been doing and the work by other people more recently, we're finding that people not only visited these areas and, and used them, but they, they lived there uh, for longer periods of time. Now, people think about artifacts when they think of what archaeologists are doing up there and archaeological sites, and we know you've certainly found artifacts and sites at these high-altitude locations, but you're also part of a team that collects a lot of different type of data from a wide range of disciplines, chemistry, geology, climatology, all these kinds of things. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what this broader project is like, and then also what we're learning, I think, which is so amazing about what people were doing, sort of the relevance today for sort of our imagination of how people use these landscapes in the past. I think it's it's fascinating. It's heartening. It tells us something about past climates and past, past peoples. And we're learning about it through these interdisciplinary collaborations. So take us on a, a trip with you, sort of mental journey. Um, well, thanks. Uh, that's a good question, Nancy. Um, I think, uh, right. The, uh, the, it, it's hard to, to think about how to, to, to conceptualize and, and pack in what has become at this point in time, uh, 19 years worth of, of research, uh, for me going back all the way to my first experiences with, uh, my colleague, Dr. E. James Dixon in Alaska, uh, and, and recognizing, of course, that those experiences were born of uh, work that was happening with First Nations groups in, in the southern Yukon Territory, 
uh, and then seeing it from the late 1990s and then bringing that all forward to uh, work in the Rocky mid latitude and Southern Rocky mountains. So in Colorado, again, Wyoming, Montana, uh, and Idaho. Um, I think the, one of the through lines has been that the, the ice that's, that's melting when we recognize that these features were relatively static places on the landscape and consequently had, uh, the potential to be uh, very old and keeping within them, if things happen to be incorporated in them, keeping that material relatively static and stable for a very long period of time, it was just really mind expanding because it, it we, we recognized them to be archives that contained uh, first and foremost, the the initial interest as an archaeologist was as they contained, you know, artifactual materials, uh, things that were related to uh, people using uh, those high altitude landscapes. And they've been those types of materials. And a lot of it tends to relate to hunting. So, I mean, it could be things like uh, uh, arrow shafts um, and dart shafts, but on occasion, and I'm talking about writ large in in Western North America, it's been everything from atlatls to uh, snares for animals to basketry to clothing, uh, all kinds of organic cultural material that that for some reason I mean, and not it's not for some reason it's very understandable that the those those sorts of objects are they're more relatable sometimes a shoe for instance, is more relatable to a lot of folks today than, uh, let's say, chipstone. Chipstone artifacts, I mean, we can understand, oh, they're used for cutting or they had other specialized functions, but they're not something that we necessarily are using each and every day and have regular experience with. But everybody can recognize a shoe because most of us put shoes on each day. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the time. Yeah, In Montana anyway, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I don't want to disenfranchise the non-shoe-wearing people. Right, right. (laughs) Very very PC of you. Yeah, exactly. portion of the demographic we're trying to reach. (laughs) So the the thing is, is there's, there's this incredible... Uh, suite of information that's there, and then the the fact that it's being exposed through this process of melting, it's not something that we we go and excavate for. We don't uh, do any kind of invasive work uh, in in pursuit of artifactual material in, in these ice patches. The ice patches are are changing the state that they were in. This it was never a steady state because uh, the the climate has had its peaks and valleys over the last number of millennia. But it, it seems like in the last probably five six decades, really, uh, there's been an an in, a typical amount of melting that's happening in these locations, and uh, the the material that's coming out, as I described it as this organic material, once it is is free of the ice, uh, all of these processes of decay can kick back in. Not can they will they do, and rapidly so. Uh, so there's a very narrow window in which we can encounter this material and engage with it. Uh, it's not like chipstone. It's not uh, incredibly resilient. Chipstone is an inorganic type of 
technology that, that that persists right for a long period of time under a variety of conditions, including very harsh conditions. But you know, organic artifacts, uh, atlatl darts, for instance, they're just not going to survive once they they come out of that preservative environment. And then radiocarbon dating those organic artifacts, we get a sense that there's in no way, shape, or form of these things recent. Um, although we do have some things that are only a couple hundred years old, we also have things that are more than 10,000 years old. And so the the recognition that the ice that had contained some of this cultural material had <laughs> been in place in, in some locations for 5,000 years, other locations for 8,000 years, and then in one particular location, more than 10,000 years. If 10,000 years worth of ice has melted away and exposed these archaeological materials, there's there's a something radical, right, that's occurring in, in these locations. And we've, we've tried to impress upon our colleagues, and there's a, a good number of them at this point in time, uh, that these are archives that contain not only the cultural material, but they also contain this incredible swath of biological material uh, that uh, everything from, from ancient trees that record old uh, forest locations before the ice patches grew to the biological materials like the bighorn sheep uh, to, not kidding you, I mean, copious amounts of dung uh, that are left from the animals that go to these ice patches uh i hear those can smell rather fresh too when they they can they don't always you know i've gotten used to it (laughs) (laughs) so you're not necessarily objective anymore yeah no 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 actually i'm I'm gonna even go so far as to say there's something vaguely pleasant (laughs) (laughs) you're like yay it's it's dung well you know what's in the dung we need that information but it's interesting it almost sounds like salvage archaeology as well as climatic studies and other things there's so much information like ian when you've talked about ice cores from antarctica these places they contain a wealth of information about the atmosphere and the climate so it's not just the artifacts and the archaeology you're you're talking about but there is sort of a race to preserve this as it's as it's melting craig yeah yeah no there is there is and and uh right we've been like i said we've been trying to maximize um uh, our, our return on field efforts because these these locations again I've, I've described it and I think you opened up with this maybe that um, you know these are spaces that we that we collectively uh, at least sort of in the uh, sort of post colonial um, you know maybe more Eurocentric view didn't perceive to be occupied uh, at, at points in the past and. And consequently, we we now manage these spaces in such a way that uh, people are not, you know, seen as being an, an integral part of that landscape. Although the archaeology uh, just says that they are are there uh, since time immemorial. So I mean, as long as we have records, uh, and that's consistent with oral histories of tribal groups, of course, as well. But um, right, it's very difficult to go to some of these locations and yes. get research accomplish. And so we, we sort of have, you know, not only an urgency and a, and a salvage aspect to it, but then we're also shackled uh, to some degree by uh, the way that we perceive and, and advertise these, these ecosystems as, as being in existence, right? We don't allow for uh, scientific research to proceed very easily in some of these locations, 
Um, I'll just say, you know, a quick shout out to my my colleagues in, inside uh, Yellowstone National Park. For the very first time uh, this year, uh, we were actually able to use a helicopter to get a research team to one of the, the very important locations that's uh, uh, associated with the park. And that's been a dream and an exercise that I've been working on uh, for the last 13 years to be able to get the permission set up to do that. Mm-hmm. Um hoping that that you know can be a harbinger of good things to come uh in terms of facilitating this this type of research yeah well you know the another thing that made me think of talking to the three of you is that um i was traveling over the bear tooth pass with a friend um a few months ago and we did the um, obligatory where you get out and you take your picture with the bear tooth pass sign in the background. And, you know, we opened the door and it was, you know, below where we had driven up from and Red Lodge was probably 70 degrees. And we got outside the door there and it was about 20 <laughs> degrees. The wind was blowing ferociously and we had to like take our picture and get back in the car in, in the matter of five minutes. So we didn't freeze to death. And so, you know, you guys, I think we're up there that same weekend and that made me really think about the this landscape and that people lived on this landscape they traveled on this landscape that we hardly ever go to and it's hard to get to like you said Craig you need a helicopter to get up there and do this work a lot I mean you're you're happy to have a helicopter to get up there and do this work whereas people were much more um uh, mobile and, and going into these landscapes that we tend to avoid nowadays. So I think that's just fascinating. But I wanted to um, follow up with Ian and, and Ian ask you a question and then maybe throw it to everybody else quickly as we kind of wrap up um, our conversation. But Ian, as you've been working with Craig and, and Shane over these past um, few months and these past few years, what are some of the things that, um, what are the benefits of this collaboration that you've seen yourself in your work? And why do you think collaborations like this should happen in the future? Oh, that's a good question, hard question. Um, yeah, I mean, sh- sharing of knowledge. Um, personally, I've be- benefited a great deal in terms of my understanding of climate change and deep time. And, you know, my intent is hopefully to share some of that knowledge I've gained with a larger audience so that, you know, an understanding of what has happened in the past, you know, what has the climate looked like in the past, what have humans done in the past, and what that might mean as, you know, as we move forward into a climate crisis, you know, how, how might humans adapt? How might we think about preserving um, natural spaces? Um, you know, I think a, an understanding of the past, a knowledge of the past, a caring of the past might hopefully bring about some, some empathy for uh, a natural, the natural world, um, what we're losing, uh, what's changing, and you know, how we might um, think about that going into the future, what, you know, what we might do about it. Thanks, Ian. Yeah. Shane, what are your thoughts? 
Uh, well, first of all, yeah, Ian, uh, great point, you know, uh, just made me think, you know, the proofs in the pudding, you know, uh, the photographs that go along with the science, um, uh, that's what really makes people, you know, have that aha moment. Um, you know, you have to see it. And I think that that's so convincing. Um, and it's so important to have Ian um, along. And in just any kind of visual or uh, way to communicate um, that information out to the public. Uh, we did a short video uh, on the, um, the ice patch archaeology that came out a couple years ago. And Craig helped to produce that. And I was uh, one of the uh, folks featured in there. And that I've shown that video to I don't know how many people, and it's always a hit. Um, and so, and the music that goes along with it. And so I think there's an artistic quality to this uh, that Ian, or Eric, I'm sorry, Ian brings um, that is essential. And then I'm trying to, you know, act as a bridge uh, to the Native culture um, and, uh, you know, just, again, make it relevant. Um, could you rephrase that question? I think I kind of got lost there. Yeah, yeah. I just, it, you know, you really answered it, Shane. It was just the importance of this work together, of this collaboration together, and and something that you've seen and learned from it. And, you know, talking about Ian's photos, that visual aspect really answered that, you know, that that's that visual aspect you've seen is so critical to this collaborative work and to the work that you do, Shane, um, bringing, mm -hmm. you know, storytelling it and bringing these stories to life and bringing these, the science to life. Um, you know, Ian does it through a visual means and you do it through a verbal means. But I think that you answer, you answered the question. To me, anyway. <laughs> and I think, I think we can link to that video. That's yeah. a lovely video. I've seen it myself. So we'll yeah. make that available to mm -hmm. the listeners. That is a, a really powerful way to also explore this collaboration. Yeah. We should do more of those. Um, and, you know, now that we have Eska Willerslev on our team and Ian, um, yeah. you know, we have more voices to include. We have new ice patches that we've looked at. The patch that we looked at this past fall, late this summer, was just so unique and spectacular as far as what was hidden underneath with that ancient forest. The fact that that ancient forest was up there leads to a whole another, you know, spinoff story about how it was there, why it died, how the ice patches came about. I mean, there's just so much to learn from. And, you know, I have to say it's been wonderful to be a part of this podcast, but it just is not long enough to do justice to the, all the rich information that's coming out of these things and all the great stuff that we're doing. But so thankful that folks get an opportunity at least to, to hear a little bit about what we're doing. Yeah, I know it's, you know, it is just a little bit of a little bit of, of a short time period to visit with all three of you, but hopefully we'll have you all back to, to speak more in depth again in the future as well. But Craig, um, throw it to you at the end here and, and um, your reflections on, on what this collaboration between the three of you have has brought to you in developing your your knowledge and, and adding to the knowledge that you have of these these landscapes of these high altitude landscapes. Oh well, thank you. Um, well, again, you know, first and foremost, I mean, it's wonderful to be here. I mean, there's no way, really, it's fair to have a podcast with just one person. Uh, I know that I'm on Zoom, and so I very much feel like I'm a talking head <clears throat> at this point. But you know, having you know uh, Ian and Shane uh, sitting in, 
it just it it it, it goes to show you the the breadth of the different uh, experiences and 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 opportunities and desires that we we're, we're trying to uh, capitalize on by 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 sharing uh, this research as widely as, as as we can. I guess my my efforts at this point in time are really trying to continue to build uh, momentum and to get uh, other parties interested in uh, nature of ice patch research, not just the archaeology, but ice patch research in total, uh, it, because I, I do think that it's endangered, right? We have uh, uh, very real evidence that very ancient ice is melting. Uh, I, I tend to now co-opt some of the words of my colleague, Tom McGovern, and when he talks about um, the burning of the the ancient library at Alexandria and the loss of information sort of for all of uh, humanity on a part of the ancient world when that, when that library was destroyed. Well, I think very much uh, the destruction of our collective cultural resources, our cultural heritage, I can't stand the word resources. It sounds like something we're going to extract our, you know, the, the memory uh, of where, you know, we have been and the physical proof uh, of our existence in these myriad locations and be that along the coastlines, which are in danger due to rising sea level or in the high alpine where, where the ice is melting, we, we are at risk of, of losing this connection. And what I don't want to see happen is that, uh, that loss to occur with no one on watch. I don't know that we can necessarily stop it, but I, I don't want it to, to, happen and no one be there to observe it and bear witness to it, to it occurring because we owe it to future generations to see uh, with our own eyes as this process occurs. And we, we want to make sure that we can get as many eyes as possible. And I mean, well-meaning eyes, those, those eyes that are open to, to seeing it for what it is. Um, I think I'm babbling now. (laughs) No, that's great. That's great. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much. We're coming to the end of our time today, but we wanted to thank all three of you for being here and discussing this um, fascinating work that you all do. And if people would like to learn more about um, each of your work separately, is there? do you have websites that you could point folks to, Ian? Um, yep, I have a personal website, um, ianvancolor.com. And yeah, the, the, the collaboration I did with Craig is up there on the, the homepage of my website, as well as multiple other collaborations with other scientists. Okay. Craig, do you have a website or so you could point people to? Yeah, I did. We did collectively have a project website that, of course, went down. So, <laughs> uh, the, the one I think that, that folks might uh, get the most information out of would be something called frozen pasts so it's f-r-o-z-e-n-p-a-s-t-s-5 and then the number five and you can find that at instar.colorado.edu that's a website for an an upcoming uh, international meeting on ice patch archaeology Uh, it's sort of synthesizing uh, all, all of the work that's occurring globally but the meeting is going to occur here in the rocky mountains uh, and that's that's maybe the best portal at present that's that's functioning. 
I can maybe send you a link. Okay, okay. Thank you. we'll post that. Yeah. And Shane, do you have a website you could point people to? I do have a website. It's still kind of under construction, uh, but uh, there's a lot on there. It's nativenexus.net. Okay. Okay, thank you. So it's been um, incredibly wonderful to have all three of you with us today. Um, And to all our listeners, we want to thank you so much for joining us today and hearing about this fantastic collaborative project about ice patch research. And we hope that you can join us again and find out more about The The Dirt Dirt on the Past. If you're enjoying The Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We're a new podcast and are trying to grow our listener base, so please share. Thanks, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.